This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Vine Guy podcast. I am your host, Scott Greenberg. And today I have the pleasure of having a very special guest, David Ramey. Now, David is among a distinguished group of pioneer American vintners who revolutionized modern day winemaking and elevated California to the forefront of the international wine community. Hailed as, and I quote, the professor of Chardonnay by Wine Spectator, David's groundbreaking work with indigenous yeast, whole cluster pressing, surly's aging, and malolectic and barrel fermentation yielded a new California Chardonnay style that was richer, and more complex, and today is emulated by many other winemakers. Now, David earned a graduate degree from the University of California at Davis, where his 1979 thesis on volatile ester hydrolysis, which essentially means how aromas evolve in wine, is still used today to understand how wine ages. Now, a stint for the Moex family at the renowned Chateau Petrus in Bordeaux, introduced David to the time-honored methods of winemaking in France. He brought these lessons back to California, where he helped establish a number of wineries that would soon become household names, such as Matanzas Creek, Chalk Hill, Dominus Estate, and Red Estate. In 1996, David and his wife, Carla, founded Ramey Wine Cellars in Sonoma, California. In addition to managing Ramey Wine Cellars, David enjoys consulting for a select handful of clients in the North Coast. He and Carla live just outside Healdsburg, not far from the winery, and their two children are now actively involved in the business, continuing the tradition of crafting some of the most sought-after wines in California. David, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you as a guest today. Hey, Scott, thanks for having me, and, and, and thanks for reading that rather fulsome bio. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have to admit that you and I just met a couple of weeks ago when I brought some friends over to the uh, winery in Healdsburg, and I have to confess something, David. It was love at first sip. The, I absolutely adore your wines, and first and foremost, because it's something that I think personally is missing in a lot of wines these days, balance. Your wines are so perfectly and beautifully balanced that it's really hard to put them down. Don't know how you do it. I don't care how you do it. I just love that you do it. And I love enjoying your wine. So uh, with that, I'd like to actually start off by saying, how do you do it? Well, you know, if, if we're focusing on Chardonnay, um, I, I refer to our Chardonnays as neo-Burgundian or neoclassical. So what, what does that mean? What's uh, basically very few exceptions. All white burgundy is made the same way and has been for a long time, decades, if not centuries. Um, so there's no skin contact. The barrel fermented goes through malolactic and aged on the leaves. That's the key. That's the four things that, that define the Burgundian production method, which it turns out works really well with California Coastal Chardonnay. Well, I'm going to stop you there because a lot of our listeners may not know what surly or malolactic actually means. If you could spend two minutes on that, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Sure. So, so malolactic is, is not an insidious plot by activist California winemakers to make <laughs> buttery Chardonnay. All wines go through malolactic on their own unless you intervene. And in fact, we use native yeast and native bacteria and the Chardonnays start going through. All our reds, all our, all our whites go through malolactic by themselves. You have to intervene to block it by adding SO2, sulfur dioxide. So the, the, it's called malolactic because in, in grape juice, there's two organic acids. There's tartaric acid and malic acid. And for some reason that the microbiologists don't know, at a certain point, the lactic acid bacteria, the same ones that make yogurt, more or less, decide to start metabolizing the malic acid that's naturally in the grape juice and, and then in the wine. And, and they, they turn it into lactic acid and some CO2. And then there's, there's this byproduct called diacetyl, which is the buttery compound. So that's what malolactic is. And we come back to the, well, 
moving ahead, the diacetyl carries forward because now we're going to talk about Lee's contact. Lee's is the spent yeast on the bottom of the barrel. Now, there's an old myth that your, some of your listeners may have heard is that following fermentation, the dead yeast fall to the bottom of the barrel. That's not true. Um, the yeast are still alive. They just ran out of, of the sugar. They ate all the sugar, made the alcohol and CO2, which was keeping them in suspension. So we go back in, there's a, a 25 cent French word, batonnage, which comes from the word baton, the noun baton, 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 like the cheerleaders twirl in the marches. Um, and, and we stir that lees up um, because the yeast are still alive. And one of the things that they have is an enzyme, it's called diacetyl reductase. Guess what it does? It reduces the diacetyl. So we would mm. take the yeast leaves up into the wine. These yeast are still alive. And that's how we can have fully malolactic Chardonnays without an overriding butterscotch character. That's where the, one of the important things that the yeast leaves contact does and why we don't rack it the wine rack uh, off the leaves, move the wine off the leaves following fermentation. Rather, we put the juice in the barrel. Five days later, the yeast, native yeast start the fermentation. A month later, the fermentation is finished and we top it up in place um, and, then, and then continue to stir that leaves until the completion of malolactic, which is very traditional. Uh, it, it's, it is, we do it once a week while we're waiting for mallow, which is, has been the tradition in Burgundy too. So uh, to put it in layperson's terms, and then uh, forgive me if I slaughter this, but essentially the, the yeast when they're done eating, right, go into hibernation, but turns out they're still useful, right? In terms yeah, of absolutely. the diacetyl. Suspended, a state of suspended animation. And if, they, if you give them something to, to do, they do it. <laughs> Without sugar, there's not a lot for them to do anymore. So this Burgundian style, is it what leads me into this whole concept of balance? Well, this may, this may play with, with balance. What, what I, in terms of Chardonnay style and the, and the barrel fermentation, small, let me, let me sidetrack and then help me remember where we're going. But I want to mention the barrel fermentation doesn't mean that you have to have an oaky Chardonnay. You know, and sometimes you see, and, and jumping ahead a little, but there was a, a fashion the last 15 years, you know, or so for like really oaky Chardonnays. And then there was a reaction against it. And so you find some people saying unoaked Chardonnay and it's mostly it's done in a, in a tank, uh, a tank fermented and, and the leaves. So you don't have the small container. Part of the, the advantage of, of the, the barrel is the size of the container so we can mix the leaves. You can't do that in a tank. So Chardonnay is the red wine of whites for two reasons. It's the most compelling, complex, interesting, and thus popular white wine in the world, um, certainly in the United States. It's the barrel fermentation in the malolactic that distinguishes it from what let's call the aromatic varieties, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, you know, Gewürztraminer, Pinot Gris, uh, Albarino, uh, Vermentino, et cetera. So where were we going before us? <laughs> balance. We were talking about does the barrel aging in your style of making a Burgundian style affect balance or produce balance. balance. Yeah. So one of the things about balance, I think, is, you know, because we use native yeast for the sugar fermentation, we use native bacteria for the malolactic, and we don't filter, we don't own a filter. Essentially, we're letting nature make the wine. And there's a, there's, there's a harmony that comes from that, that you don't get if the enologist or winemaker is always poking it and adding this and adding that. And, um, we add a little bit of um, sulfur dioxide to the juice. That's very important if you're working with native yeast keep the bacteria in check so the fermentation can finish. And um, if we need to, which is perhaps half the time with Chardonnay, we might add a little bit of tartaric acid to the juice so that the end uh, pH of the wine is not, is not so high. Um, can I explain uh, pH for, for your listeners? <laughs> Let's head down that path. So, 
so when people talk about acidity in wine, there's two measures. There's TA or total acidity, more correctly, titratable acidity. You titrate it in the lab from a burette. And then there's pH. Now, don't get scared off here, but the pH is the negative log of the hydrogen ion concentration. So that explains the negative part, explains why more acidic wines have a higher TA, but they may have a lower pH. And the log is a, is a function, means that it's a, it's a factor of 10, so that the pH 3.0 wine, most wines are between 3.0 and 4.0, a few outliers on either side. But pH 3.0 has 10 times more hydrogen ions floating around than pH 4.0. Now, I'll explain a little too, because these hydrogen ions, this is why pH is so important. These hydrogen ions or protons, they dissociate from these organic acids, tartaric and malic, in very small amounts. And each acid has its own dissociation constant. But these protons or hydrogen ions jump, jump off into solution. And that's the measure of pH. But they're very important because they're very tiny but they're all positively charged. So they have what, you know, what's called a high charge to mass ratio. So they're very, like very active, moving around, doing things in the wine. And that's why we pay attention to, to pH. Now, one last thing, you don't taste pH as sour. You taste total acidity as sour, like lemon juice or vinegar. You know, it's, it's sharp, it's, it's acidic. pH, you don't taste that way. But instead, it affects the mouthfeel of the wine, which becomes almost a textural thing. And so imagine a dry Riesling, a trochan Riesling, has very low pH, 3.0. Very skinny, without the sugar in that dry Riesling. Very skinny, lean mouthfeel. Now, if your listeners are familiar with uh, Condrieu, a Viognier. Yep. Viognier, yep. I'll make some, um, I think, Versailles. They have a very fat, round mouthfeel. They have a pH of 4.0. A lot of people don't know that they traditionally go through malolactic there in the in, in Condrieu also. That's so, but then then they have this pH 4.0, so this fat, round mouthfeel. So that's kind of the the, the some background on TA and pH, which we look at together when we discuss acidity. I'm now beginning to understand why Wine Spectator refers to as Professor Chardonnay. David, that really, it fits. And I do, I appreciate the chemistry lesson. I really do. And I think a lot of our listeners will be fascinated by this as well. I, I try, it's, it's really not that complicated. I mean, I, I just, you know, I think I explained it in plain English. I, I want to morph the conversation a little bit from balanced ageability because I've had plenty of white burgundies that have had some age on them, 10, 15, some even 20 years old, and they've been delightful. And about, I want to say two or three months ago, I had the wonderful opportunity of opening up one of your Chardonnays from 2008. And everybody at the table kind of looked at me and went, rut row, <laughs> how's this going to go? And David, it was wonderful. It was absolutely beautiful. So, you know, there's, there's balance, but then there's also factors that can influence ageability of Chardonnay and, and white wine in general, of course. But a lot of people are really very reticent to try older Chardonnays and kind of want to get your thoughts on this. How come that 2008 was just perfect? Well, it depends on the producer. Some producers, well, it was you. they don't make <laughs> what the French call Vendigal or wine for the cellar. You know, the, at Bordeaux, the, they teach the students the difference between making a, a Vendigal or a wine for the cellar be it red or white, and a vin de consommation, supermarket wine, just, you know, not, not meant for aging. Um, we only make vin de gown, wines for the cellar, red or white. They, they're they're going to be good for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, when I started making wine, well, at, at Lambert Bridge Winery in 1978 as a harvest job, and then full-time with Selma Long at Simi in 1980, Everybody was doing skin contact overnight. We'd crush the grapes and then put them in a tank and let them sit there. And of course, 
in those days, there was no night harvest. Uh, everything they started at dawn and we'd get hot grapes delivered in the afternoon. So the temperature was hot, hot too. And, and people don't think of white wine, of tannins relative to white wine, but all the color that you have in white wine, all the yellow or greenish yellow or gold or tan or brown is from tannin. The tannins are colorless, unoxidized and, and progressively yellow, tan, brown as, as they oxidize. So ironically, now, now here's where it's, so tannins at the time were, had a reputation for being antioxidative, that they were an aid to ageability. But what I came to figure out was that, well, that's red wine logic, not white wine logic. In red wine, you've got the tannins from the skins flavonoid tannins, and you've got anthocyanins, the color molecules. And as the tannin oxidizes, then it forms a, a bond with an anthocyanin, and it's a dimer, and then it regenerates and reoxidizes, and then you go to trimer and a tetramer, and then a, finally a polymer, this color tannin, color tannin, color tannin, and you get this long chain. Eventually, in an old red wine that's rich enough in these phenolic materials, that's the deposit that falls out, that, that that polymer gets too long to stay in solution. So in that sense, tannin in red wine is antioxidative or an aid to ageability. In white wine, you've got no color molecules, so there's no polymerization. And when the, if the tannin is there, it will oxidize. And so all those wines... Dick Arrowwood was making at Chateau Saint Jean in the you know in the in the in the eighties. They were the hot Chardonnays at the time, but you know three years later I bought some. Three years later we were dumping them down the drain because they turned brown and oxidized. So that's one aspect, and and, and so I, I I played a role here in in pioneering a whole cluster pressing. When I when I moved away from Simi Winery to Matanzas Creek in, in eighty four. I said for the 85 harvest, my first one, well, I'm not going to do any skin contact. And then I was thinking, well, so I was, I was, I was doing what was common in Burgundy at the time, which is, which is crushing, but not destemming, and then pumping the, that mass of crushed grapes and stems into the press and pressing right away. So no skin contact. But I, but you still had the the mechanical grinding and tearing of the of the of the crushing rollers and the and the pump to get it into the press and a little the little short screw screw conveyor to feed the press. And I thought, well, what if we eliminate that? What if we just so we we built a, a plywood hopper on top of the press at Matanzas about 1987. And that was the very first um, example of other than champagne of whole cluster pressing for still white wines in California. And then uh, people copied it. And now if you go around wineries, you see the hoppers, stainless steel hoppers on top of the press. It's, it's, it's just standard. Pretty, you know, a lot of people do it. You get some of the nouveau kids that are going back to skin contact. You know, they, they, they talk about Radicon and, you know, and Grovner and, and stuff. And, you know, that's fine. Every generation has got to reinvent the wheel for themselves. But um, I'm interested in, in uh, you mentioned, texture and, and balance i'm interested in in a in a silky silky texture and these these uh, skin you know skin contact wines have a coarseness to them from the the tannins that that doesn't appeal to me and yeah i should probably mention to our, our listeners that uh whole cluster is very different from destemmed and uh, berries going into uh a, a press so a whole cluster was a relatively new concept in California when you came along. There was not a lot of whole cluster Chardonnay going on. No, back there, then. no there wasn't any. There, was, there wasn't any. I I essentially invented it in California. <laughs> okay, there's one in the column. And I got to tell you, it's it's a wonderful and and I'm glad, so glad you're not making orange wine. Thank you, David. I appreciate that. It's a, you know, the thing about orange, orange wine is the, the, the guys that are fermenting whites on the skins now for a week, two weeks, six months is, in, in my experience, and I haven't had a lot of them, but I've had a few, it, it obliterates varietal character. You yep. can't tell if that's Gewürztraminer, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris. It could be anything. It's an orange wine. No, oh, but David, of course you can tell. It's on the label. It tells you what it is. <laughs> there you go. So I want to switch gears for a little bit because there's a 
kind of an interesting thing that I've noticed what went on throughout the world, but in particularly, in particularly in California. And it's what can be referred to as the Parker stylistic years. And I know that uh, it's something that you wanted to maybe uh, touch on as well. well what, first of all, what, what is, in your opinion, the Parker stylistic years? And what does well, that mean? You know, Bob was, Bob was tremendous for the wine world, and particularly Bordeaux, and also the Rhone, but also California. You know, he really helped people make, particularly in Bordeaux, uh, better wines. I mean, you know, somewhat richer, uh, somewhat riper. As the decades went on, I think Bob's Bob needed uh, bigger and bigger flavors, and he began to favor like really loud wines, big wines. He, he wasn't a particular fan of acid, and so he rewarded Chardonnays with very low acid, very high pH, pH 4.0, with high scores, a lot of oak, and you know, 16% alcohol. And these wines were getting 16% alcohol in a Chardonnay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you'd be surprised. I am surprised. (laughs) You'd be surprised. Yeah. Um, And, and so, uh, you know, toward the end, I I think he, he, he favored two of full wines, wines of strength uh, as opposed to wines of of elegance or, or, or balance. And so. What was that? What was that time period? During the, the aughts, I would say that was the peak. The aughts, starting starting in the late nineties, and you know, to to the aughts, through the aughts, yeah. And and now, what would is that pendulum swung back? What's well, well, it did swing a little bit uh, too far. With um, Jasmine Hirsch and Raj Parr started this uh, pursuit of balance thing, which was basically an anti Parker. Uh, anti-high alcohol thing. And in some of those wines from the extreme Sonoma coast, people were making them, you know, at, at, at 12% alcohol. It's like, well, we're going to make a low alcohol wine, whether it tastes good or not. Kind of kind of forgetting that in Burgundy, if they were faced with uh, 12.2 alcohol, potential alcohol, they'd chaptalize it a point and a half, bring it up to 13.7. And because of a certain, certain measure of alcohol within, within balance, um, brings a pleasurable richness to the to the palate. So that was an extreme. I think I think with Bob's retirement and and Jim Lobby uh, retiring from Wine Spectator, that producers, uh, you know, let's let's be real. People making wine have to sell it, and you know, and so they ignore popular critics' tastes at their peril. But now. I think California producers are freer to dial back the alcohol a little bit, not not to an extreme, but to a, a nice traditional balance and um, dial back the new oak and um, keep a, more of an eye on the acidity. Of course, if you harvest earlier, if you harvest where you're at 13.8 alcohol rather than 15.5, you naturally have more more acid in the in the grapes. It's interesting that we're, we're talking about scores and scores do sell, but people still follow those scores or those recommendations. And at the end of the day, yes, you have to make room in the cellar for the next vintage and you got to sell wine. But I am curious that, you know, pendulums swing, but they do eventually work their way back to the, the middle. I, I hope. Uh, and there was for a while, these unfair characterizations of Chardonnay, and Zinfandel, but I find it interesting that Spectator just last month, David, listed you as one of the legends of winemaking. And, uh, you know, so A, you know, regardless of how you might feel about uh, um, some of these publications, they certainly love you. And B, what's it like to be a legend? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say, I mean, the, the editorial uh, team at the Wine Spectator's Napa office has, has changed substantially. And, and um, after Jim Lobby retired, uh, Kim Marcus was, was the, in charge of the office and, and a lot of the publishing decisions. And, and then um, Kim passed away. And now Marianne uh, Worobiak 
is in charge of the Napa office. And, and if I can say so, I just think she's she's very good. I mean, she's a, she's a breath of fresh air. So I think that um, the team, both um, internationally and um, in New York and in Napa, is the best that the spectators ever, ever been. So I, I'm, I'm, of course, very happy that they, they, they recognize uh, some of my role in, in the history of California Chardonnay. Well, it was delightful reading the article, and it was even more delightful meeting you. So, <laughs> no, just, and I have to say, David, you were absolutely wonderful and just a lovely host, but I was a little intimidated, and that doesn't happen to me often. Oh, go get out of here. Oh, Scott, I want to come back to one thing, because we were talking a little about ageability, and here's something that your listeners may appreciate. There's, so the one aspect, there are numbers, but the one aspect of ageability is in whites is keeping the tannins low, um, through whole cluster pressing. Also, yeah. oxidized juice is a thing that, you know, that it's like if you, um, juice has oxidative enzymes, polyphenol oxidase, and it's like if you take an apple and cut it and put it on your kitchen counter, it turns brown. That same enzymes in grape juice turn those tannins uh, and then they, they brown and, and oxidize them and then they fall out during fermentation. So again, lower tannins, that's a factor. Another factor is the, the lees. It turns out that um, the, the long, long lees contact is something that, that you really shouldn't short circuit. Our Appalachian Chardonnays, our Russian River, and our Fort Washeview spend 12 months on the lees. And uh, the single vineyard Chardonnays, Hyde, Ritchie, Woolsey Road, Rocchioli, Westside Farms, spend uh, 20 months on the lees, a long time. And there's a sulfur-containing amino acid called glutathione that leak out of the yeast cells with over time. And that's an, a powerful antioxidant. You can actually go on, on Amazon and buy it as an, and take the pills, glutathione pills, as an anti-aging thing for yourself. Anyway, that's a factor. The final factor and <clears throat> Is, is the sulfur dioxide at bottling. And some of your listeners may have heard of Burgundy Premox or maybe have been burned by buying uh, white Burgundies that then uh, oxidize prematurely in the bottle. And that's, that's simply because some of them decided to, to, they fell in love with low SO2 ideologically, and they were bottling at too low an SO2. The, the amounts that we're talking about, I mean, we bottle at about 100 parts per million total SO2 and, and 43, which declines over time in the bottle. So you're, these, are, these are really tiny quantities of SO2 relative to any dried fruit that you might have, the raisins that you put in your oatmeal, the prunes that, you know, you, you stew up. I mean, they've got, they're loaded with SO2, uh, dried apricots. Um, so a lot of food products have a lot of SO2. And to worry about less than 100 parts per million SO2 in, in wine is just silly. And that's why some producers, some like I got burned buying a case of uh, 1996 uh, white burgundy. And, and the thing was, this veers into another little thing, but out of the same case, you'd find a good bottle and then a bottle right next to it would not be good. It would be oxidized, tan in color and, 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 and aldehydic sherry-like in the aroma. What's that difference? Because they all had the same amount of SO2 at bottling. It was too low. The difference was the cork. And cork has, has what we call variable OTR, oxygen transmission rate. And so different corks let more or less oxygen, air, either through them or mostly down the side between the cork and the, and the neck of the bottle. And uh, there's a new, new, relatively new product that we adopted with the 2013 vintage uh, called DM. It's a, it's a French company. Uh, and um, these are granulated corks then stuck back together with uh, beeswax, and they've taken all the, the TCA out, the trichloroanisole, so there are no more cork bottles, but in terms of, of, of compressing and formulating the corks, they also standardize the OTR, the oxygen transmission rate. So if those low SO2 bottles had had a DM cork, they would have had a better chance of, of surviving 
but that's a, that, that, that low SO2 and then cork variability is, is the explanation for burgundy premox. Right. And just to make sure that our listeners know, we're talking about the SO2 really as a stabilizer. That's what's really helping. It has, it has two functions, uh, but the function we're talking about here is, is its antioxidation function. Right. It's also antimicrobial, but if you don't have a lot of microbes, that's not a big factor. Uh, David, I'm, I'm going to switch gears for this a little bit because I want your opinion on something. And I hope you don't mind. About two or three months ago, I was invited to a California Cabernet tasting. It was blind. And it was done at a very high-end level and at a very fancy-schmancy restaurant. And keep in mind, I spent many, many years as a professional wine judge. And I kind of, you know, thought that my palate was relatively sharp. And we had a lineup of 20 different high-end California Cabernets from all over uh, Napa Valley. And I'll be damned if I could pick out the difference between any 15 of them. They really felt, for lack of a better word, almost homogenous. Homogeneous. Yeah, that's a good Homogeneous, right? I mean, I couldn't, you know, there were some little tiny itty bitty differences, but they all tasted the same. And I just kind of wanted to get your opinion about that. What's going on with this perceived, at least from my perspective, uh, homogenization of California Cabernet, particularly Napa Valley? Well, I, I, I agree with you, and it's as if they, they sort of all taste kind of like Schaefer Hillside Select. You know, one factor is, I mean, it, Napa has um, the success that the critical press, Bob Parker, you know, Spectator, has given Napa Valley, has attracted a lot of outside money, both as investment and as tourism. Two, two different money streams, but all, you know, funneling through Napa Valley. And a lot of the new outside producers, um, you know, new owners, they may not know that much about why they come in. And there's a handful of consultants that in Napa Valley that make a living uh, providing services to these folks. Um, you know, Philippe Melka, Thomas Rivers Brown, Aaron Pott, um, there's no, there's, there's, a, there's a number of, um, Julian Fayard. It's just unreasonable to think that their wines are not going to taste similar. And there's a fair bit of paying attention to what the other guy's doing going on. And I mean, I learned this from a former consultant client, uh, you know, a couple of months ago, he was getting ready to bottle. He works at his winemaker at Napa winery and he was getting ready to bottle and he, and he, um, uh, he said, yeah, we're going to bring in the RO machine, RO's reverse osmosis. And, and um, I said, what, what are you doing that? He says, oh, everybody does it. It's like, so you do that right before bottling, bring in the RO machine, and take some water out of the wine to further concentrate it. So that's a, that's a factor right there. I mean, he said everybody does it. I don't know. That's going to homogenize things itself, uh, along with, you know, 100% new oak, you know, 15.7 alcohol. Um yeah, there's definitely a similarity. <laughs> yeah, when they, they pulled the bags off of these wines, almost every single one of them was between 15.5 and 15.7. Yeah. Every single one of them. It was just fascinating that they are all within just a couple points of each other. Yep. And sometimes, too, you know, we've done trials with the electric eye, the photoelectric eyes for berry selection, and we didn't like the results. Uh, the wine was arguably, it was more unidimensional. You could say purer, but it was less interesting. It was less complex than if you had some little range of different maturities going in. So I think that can be a factor too. If the, if the photoelectric eye is just kicking out every berry that doesn't hit a certain level of darkness, so listen, before we get into tasting a couple of your wines, I want to t- touch on one last topic, and that is the worldwide explosion of great wines, almost everywhere, right? You know, I mean, I don't think they're making wine yet in Antarctica, but, you know, give it time. But uh, what, uh, what do you think about this? What's going on? Why are we getting so much great wine now around the world? Oh, it's fantastic. And it's great for, for wine drinkers. I mean, because now, on, I mean, you know, 
there's great wine being made on every continent except Antarctica, you know. I give it time, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, Europe, Asia, uh, South Africa, South America, North America, Australia. When I finished my, my master's at Davis in 79, I was the only one that went over and worked overseas in France. And I thought it would be important to, to learn the traditions, how, how they, they'd been making wine for, you know, a thousand years. Uh, and, and the French weren't coming over here much either. Now there's a lot more exchange. You got like we had in 93, I had uh, Pierre-Yves Collin, now Pierre-Yves Collin Moet, uh, worked to harvest uh, with us at Chalk Hill. And, and so he took some of that stuff back uh, and, and uses these techniques with the wines that he makes. And uh, more kids are, are going to France. Um, so there's a lot more international exchange uh, than there used to be. And, and, and investment, you know, a lot of the French have invested, uh, maybe not a lot, but several in, in South America. And then also, you know, uh, AXA, Christian Seeley just bought the vineyard we used, we used to make Chardonnay from, the Platte Vineyard. Rotor established a foothill, uh, foothold here in Anderson Valley, but then bought Mary Edwards and uh, Diamond Creek. And, and so this, the world is much more, um, less provincial than it used to be and more international. And that exchange of, of knowledge, of technique, of ideas, and of, and of different flavor profiles has really been good for making better wine all over the world. Yeah, and I um, spoke recently with uh, Heidi Vandermeer over at Mary Edwards and asked her very pointedly, what, what do you think the sale of uh, Rotor has done for you? And she said, it has expanded our knowledge. Yeah. Which I thought was a great answer. Yeah. A great yeah. answer. Yeah. And investment capability, too. Both, you know, potential. I don't know if they've bought any vineyards since, but, uh, you know, potential they could buy more vin more vineyards. So they'd be more more estate, less purchased. Not that there's a huge difference there, but, um, they can, you know, better equipment, better lab equipment, you know, stuff like that. Well, David, I don't know about you, but all this talk about wine has made me very, very, very thirsty. So it's coming to my favorite part of the podcast where what's in your glass? Okay, well, I'm going to go to the fridge and get a bottle of Chardonnay. And what we have here is a bottle of 2019, which is our current release, Fort Ross Seaview, Sonoma Coast, Chardonnay. Now, we labeled this as a, as a village, as, as a AVA, okay. um, but it happens to be from a single vineyard. It happens to be from uh, the Martinelli family's Charles Ranch out on Bohan Dillon Road, which is the second ridge in. First ridge is where Flowers, and we're directly east of Flowers. There's a, there's a, there's a canyon and then, and then a ridge top, and that's where we are. Um, we, I say we, but the, the Charles Ranch. Nearby vineyards include Hirsch and the Marcusan Vineyard, the Martinelli's Three Sisters Vineyard, which is really part of Charles Ranch. It's just a, a slightly removed in a newer newer planting. So this is a very coastal vineyard. It's the last vineyard that we, uh, last Chardonnay vineyard that we harvest. Typically, oh, three weeks, to, three weeks after the earliest Russian river and maybe a week after the last Russian river Chardonnay. As you get, Russian river is a fairly big appellation. And at the northern end here of Healdsburg is, is warmer. Right. And as you get closer to the ocean, heading south and then west in Green Valley, for example, yep. you know, around Sebastopol, um, it's, it's much cooler. And so there's, there's like a three-week difference uh, in when we harvest Chardonnay within the Russian River. I was shocked when we stayed in Sebastopol that I had actually put on a jacket at night. Yeah. And then the night that we had dinner up in Healdsburg, it was perfectly delightful. So. Oh. The, the coast, the west coast of the United States, at least from sort of the Willamette Valley all the way down to the Santa Rita Hills, has a maritime climate. Uh, it's not a continental climate. Continental climate, which would be central France, you know, it's hot in Chateauneuf-du-Pape and Provence. And then as you go north, you get north and it's get colder. And then you're in Chablis and then you're in Champagne and of course, now we know that they're making sparkling wine in, in, southern, in England. And so this is an example. Um, so that's a, a continental 
climate. Um, California, we've got this monster Pacific Ocean out there, which is pretty much often about 57 degrees, this big thermal mass right there. And, and then the fog forms. And, and, and so we wake up in the morning and it's foggy and, and 57 degrees, more or less, plus or minus. And then it burns off around, depending on where you are, you know, in Hillsburg, it might burn off at 10 o'clock. In Sebastopol, it's going to burn off at noon, yep. you know. Yep. And in Sebastopol, it's going to be foggy again at four o'clock, maybe. And, you know, and we, we can see it coming in. Most up in Hillsburg, it comes through in the night. And, and that is, that's our savior for, you know, this, this global warming is the maritime climate. And so the closer you get to a gap in the coastal hills, that's where the, the, the marine influence comes in. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about that marine influence. You're talking about Fort Ross uh, over on the coast. Matter of fact, the only time I think I've ever been carsick while driving was getting up there. <laughs> Pretty windy roads up that way. What does that maritime influence translate to in the wine, particularly uh, the Chardonnay? Yeah. If you leave tannin out and you leave sugar out, the three structural elements or measures of, of wine of wine chemistry of, of a wine structure would be the alcohol, the TA and the pH, which we discussed. So in some years, the Fort Ross Sea View from the Charles Ranch and our Russian River Chardonnay, which is half from our own estate, Westside Farms. And then there's a Dutton vineyard in there and sometimes some Rocchioli, um, the Martinelli vineyard in there. They could be identical. And yet the Russian River always tastes a little richer, a little rounder than the Sonoma Coast. The Sonoma Coast tastes a little crisper, a little more acidic, and, and it, it, but the numbers are identical. So that's terroir, you know, <laughs> or, or airoir, as somebody said. Well, you know, on the coast, you're getting those diurnal swings, right? A little bit, I think a little bit more dramatic, the diurnal swings on. Right. Well, another thing plays in here is elevation. Charles Ranch is about a thousand feet, 1,050. And um, as you, cold air, sinks cold air flows downhill and so as we drive out to the charles ranch along along the russian river to jenner it'd be foggy and 57 degrees and then as we start going up you, you get out of the fog and by the time you get to charles ranch it's it's 72 degrees so the thing about elevation what what elevation does is it has warmer nights it doesn't get as cold as is down in the valley but it also doesn't get as hot. It's cooler uh, just as an elevation effect. I mean, I think you lose five degrees or something for every thousand feet in elevation. So if you get up at, you know, if you're up at 5,000 feet in the Sierras, you know, you're cooler than in Sacramento. Um, so that's a factor. And then, yeah, just being close to, close to the big, massive body of water, the Pacific Ocean is a, in itself a cooling influence. So let's talk a little bit about the wine. Tell me what what you're seeing in this, what, what's the flavor? What's the structure? What do you love about it? Oh, I'm not that great at, at, at descriptors. I, I, one thing I would say is that shortly after I left Davis in 79, one of, one of our professors, Ann Noble, with a grad student, Pat Howe, came up with the uh, aroma wheel. And I think it has done a disservice to wine writers ever since because wine critics, wine writers, Reviewers think that now that they have to describe wines in terms of fruit descriptors, you know, or tread, tread, tread lightly here, David. Only? <laughs> tread lightly here. Oh, well, I mean, you know, apples, bananas, pears, blueberries, gravel berries. And, and, and I, don't, I miss the old French way, the corporeal descriptions. And, and it, you could often they were men, so they made them sexist. So you could say, well, this wine is is, uh, you know, is Jane Mansfield and this wine is uh, Audrey Hepburn, but it doesn't have to be. It could be uh, this wine is Arnold Schwarzenegger and this wine is James Dean, you know, uh, it doesn't have to be gender based. Um, but that gives you an idea of the, the, the leanness, the voluptuousness, the texture, the lushness, the silkiness. To me, it's all about mouthfeel. I don't really care about aroma unless it's a fault. So what's a fault? Well, quirkiness, um, oxidation, acetic, uh, breadth, reduction, 
Right. Uh, those are all faults. And as long as there isn't, then I don't pay a lot of attention to the aroma. It smells nice, but you know, it's not the main event. The main event is happening in your mouth. You know, we're drinking this stuff because it tastes good. And, and so our Chardonnays always have what I would say is, is um, refreshing acidity, prominent acidity. They taste fine by themselves, but really they go better with food and in particular seafood. And if you're, if it's a young Chardonnay like this in 19, then, then just grilled fish is, is perfect. If this were 10 years older, then I'd take that same fish and maybe add a nice sauce to it and have a little richer presentation. And that's, that'd be something that you would find in the, in the restaurants in Bone. And it's so interesting. I am guilty. So, so guilty of using those descriptors, uh, both of my column and radio show and my son, who is now 29 and has grown up watching me taste wine and has recently joined me in tasting wine. He describes wine so differently. He describes the wines in terms of textures. Yeah. He doesn't care about aroma. That's great. He, he is, <laughs> yeah, like you said, unless it's faulty, unless it's Band-Aid or rubber hose or Brett, he, he doesn't care. He's like all about texture. And one time we were drinking uh, a particular Pinot Noir. I, I was going, oh, it's Bing Cherry and this, that, and the other. And I'm getting, you know, Rainier this and raspberries. He's like, Dad, it's a cashmere sweater. <laughs> you know, he's like, it's elegant. It's, it's sexy. It's beautiful. It's warm. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. And I was like, yeah. what are you talking about? <laughs> I, got, I, got a, I got an acolyte there. You do. You would love to meet him. I'll send him your way. All right. So that's the uh, 19 Fort Ross Chardonnay. I think you have one more for us. Yeah, you got here. What I have here is our current release of Pinot Noir, which is the 2018 Russian River Valley. You can't buy, as we did in 2000, late 2012, 75 acres on West Side Road, a mile south of Rocchioli across the street from William Selyum and not make a Russian River Valley Pinot Noir. So we started in 14 and this is the 18 now. It's an interesting development when we bought our 75 acre ranch, Westside Farms. There were 32 acres of Chardonnay and 10 and a half acres of Pinot Noir. Now, grape contracts or leases survive a change of ownership. So we had to honor initially the Margot at St. Jean was buying uh, most of the Chardonnay. Some went to Kenwood, some went to Gary Farrell, and we had to kind of wait those contracts out. But the Pinot Noir was a long-term lease by Silver Oak for Toomey, for their Toomey brand. Hmm. So they planted it and we were well compensated, but they uh, walked away from the lease uh, after the 21 harvest. And so this is the first year that we get all the Pinot off of our own property. So that's pretty exciting for us. Congratulations. Thank you. So what's it like? <laughs> well, you know, my daughter, Claire, who with her brother, Alan, owned the, owned the winery and the vineyard these days. We passed them over to them last year. Uh, she's in charge of the vineyards. She's making the harvest decisions. And she works with our um, longtime 20-year-plus bit consultant, Daniel Roberts, Dr. Dirt. And there's a fair bit of retrofitting that needs to go on. We're, we're converting gradually uh, cordon pruning to cane pruning. In some cases, we just whacked off the vine at the base and let totally new shoots grow up and we're going to train those. So it's a work in progress, but we'll see. We get to make our own Pinot for the first time this year. So we'll probably do a little like we do with the Chardonnay of Westside Farms is, is bottle some as, as a vineyard designate, take the best lot, and then some just we would remain Russian River as, as this wine, but um, this has got some Booker grapes in it. John Booker, our neighbor up West Side Road. It's got some grapes from Dennis de la Montaña. It's got some grapes from deeper in the Green Valley uh, from a Dutton farmed vineyard, Goff. I actually walked that vineyard when I was out there. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, Kurt, you were out at the invitation of Carissa Cruz. And yep. And Steve and Carissa both walked us through uh, that vineyard. 
it was lovely. So I know where those grapes came from. I'm going to ask you to describe the, the wine, but please don't say cashmere sweater. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a textural thing. It's funny. I, two days ago, I had a, a longtime friend, Jackie Rigaud, who's a French wine writer and educator, and his son. And I, t- I put all our pinots out. He's from, he's from Burgundy. He wrote the biography of Henri Jaillet, uh, amongst other his five books he's published. And, and he, was, he was very much talking about the texture in, in, in analogizing to fabrics. And he, he, used, he used silky to describe our Chardonnays as opposed to, to plush, to more flannel or cashmere. So <laughs> he said silky, I'm, I'll, I'll take that. Um, these are, and, and, and I've had a, 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 doing one of these with an MW at, at, in, in London, um, 67 Paul Mall. He said that our Pinot was more Cote de Bone rather than Cote de Nuit. Cote de Bone is, is uh, where mostly Chardonnay grows, but there's the Pinots are generally a little lighter in color, and the Cote de Nuit, they're deeper and darker in color and more muscular in the tannic structure. Our Pinots are, are, are more Cote de Bone. Um, and we don't monkey with them. We don't, I mean, they're just natural. A lot of the Pinots are like some of those Napa Cabernets are monkeyed with, and they're very dark in color. and and we don't we don't do this. You can see through this wine, and and it has it has acidity. I said that Chardonnays are the red wine of whites. Well, Pinot Noirs are the white wine of reds because in a red wine the structure is 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 between tannin and acid and alcohol. As the as the tannin goes up, the acid really has to come down. That's Cabernet. But as the as the tannin comes down, then acidity plays a more prominent role. And that's, that's Pinot Noir. Um, so that's why, that's why Pinot Noir is the, the go-to red wine for fish. Cause it, it's, it's almost like, well, it's the white wine of reds. And I haven't done that since last week. I can't tell Scott, you know, on, on the one hand, the cardiologists are telling us to eat, eat fish, you know, three times a week. And then the other people are saying, well, you know, there's a lot of uh, contaminants in the ocean these days, and maybe not more than once a week. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's right. I'll tell you what's right, David. Drink more wine. I'm not at any risk there. I'm, <laughs> I'm a, a well-preserved 71-year-old, and I could credit a little wine at lunch and a little more at dinner with that. You, uh, well, David, I got to tell you, this has been Wonderful. It has been beyond expectation. You are so kind and generous, not only with your time, but with your knowledge. And I I have to say, I've learned a lot today. I thought I knew a lot, and now I know just a little bit more thanks to you. And this has just been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate, you know, appreciate you having me on. I appreciate it. I take a sauna. I've got a sauna in the house. I take a weekly sauna and I listen to podcasts. So that's when I'll, that's when I'll listen to how we did. Well, based on the length of this conversation, David, you're going to be in there a while. Oh yeah. <laughs> It'd have to be two sessions, <laughs> 30 minutes max. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Remember until the next time, do good, drink well. Well,